Good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning. First impressions, if you can give me a hand this morning, um, if you would just go to the back pub tables and if you would grab the communion trays and, uh, and as soon as you grab them, immediately walk forward and start passing those down the row. Uh, gives us a chance to serve everybody. And so uh, if you're uh, a tender of K-First or newer to K-First, we invite everybody to the table. We'll talk about that in a, in a little while. But in the middle of the message, we're going to take communion together. So I'd invite everybody to, to participate. I've had people say, do I have to be a member of the church? Uh, do I have to give to the church? No, no. We just ask that, uh, that you've got a commitment to Christ, and we want to invite you to the table of Jesus. So during the message, we will be taking these. And here's a little tip. Push the end down, and that way you should be able to separate and get the a piece of styrofoam off the top, and y'all know what I'm talking about, right? And uh, hey, by the way, we have got new communion cups that are going to be on their way. We're going to be done with these ones. Yeah, a revival will break out at K-First just from changing up these wonderful, wonderful things. Uh, a couple things here. Uh, thank you for, for making Pastor Olivia feel so welcome. She's been doing phenomenal leading worship just these few weeks. Just spectacular and uh, just again when, when you're newer to the church newer to uh, this is literally a new state new city do everything make sure that you do connect with her invite her over for uh, for dinner sometime out to lunch uh, throw some Meyer gift cards at her get her some groceries uh, just uh, my biggest thing is getting you connected to her and her hearts uh, as, as well as you heard, we're celebrating the 90th anniversary of K-First this September, and so we're going to do a three-week series called XC. It's the Roman numeral for 90. And uh, the first week of the series, Brooks McElhaney, a former um, assistant pastor of Kalamazoo First Assembly, his brother was the previous pastor. Brooks is going to be preaching on a Sunday morning. The following week, our superintendent for the Assemblies of God here in the state of Michigan, Aaron Halavin, will, will be preaching. And then you have to settle for me in week number three. And we are doing sweatshirts. We have tried to keep them as close to cost as possible. Um, so if you haven't bought a sweatshirt or a t-shirt, um, I, I, I can't wait. I just can't cannot wait for September. I believe God is just going to send us into a brand new season. Last but not least, um, I want to celebrate uh, something this morning. Uh, you gave it a love offering to Dustin uh, McClellan and his wife Colette in, ter in terms of uh, you're starting a new church work in the city of Pontiac where it has been very difficult to find, establish, and to have a, a church thrive. And so this morning, I want to show you a picture. This is their first Sunday morning this morning there in Pontiac. This is what you gave to. This is what, with your generosity, this is what you were able to help bring into uh, fruition. And so today is kind of their soft launch, and I think in six weeks is going to be their hard launch. And if you're a church planter, you take six weeks to try to work out all the bugs with your team, and then you're building up toward your first week. So I am so stoked for the McClellans and what God is doing in them and what God's going to do there in the city of Pontiac. If you open up your Bibles... Um, and would you stand with me for the reading of the word this morning? Mark chapter 8. Uh, I should have introduced myself to guests. I have met four guests this morning already. Uh, okay, first, I love that we have a place where guests want to come. Thank you for the way that you greet and the way that you just develop a, an atmosphere of just celebration. Uh, my name is Dave. If, you haven't, if I haven't met you, I'm the pastor, and I just want to say thank you for joining with us. Let's read the word of the Lord this morning. Chapter 8, Mark 8, verse 1. In those days... 
when again a great cloud, cloud, crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat, and he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. And if I send them away, hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come a far way. And the disciples answered them, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? He, they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and took the seven loaves, and after giving thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people and set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these should also be set before them. They ate and were satisfied. They took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away and immediately got into the boat with the disciples and went to the district of Deluminetha, or what's called Decapolis. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking a sign from him, from heaven, to test him, and he sighed deeply in his spirit. Have you ever sighed at your children before? You're just like Jesus. Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes to see, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls and broken pieces did you take up? And they said 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said, do you not yet understand? We're in a series called Questions Jesus Asked. And I'm going to tell you, we have just asked nine questions. Nine questions. But I'm going to sit on that last one that we're going to end with today. Do you not yet understand? McFly, do you not get it? Also, are you not asking yourself, how are you hungry in the boat? You had seven basketfuls left. Did you not grab something that maybe I'm the only person thinking like that. But let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to just break open your word that we would take in and understand who is the word. Jesus, your servant John says that you are the word, the word that became flesh, that dwelt among us. And in you, we behold the glory of Almighty God. So I ask today that you would speak because your servants are listening and we are ready to respond in obedience to whatever you speak into our lives. So I bless this time. We bless it all in Jesus' name. And everyone said, give someone an awkward high five before you're seated. I heard three high fives. That's all I heard. Goodness gracious. I need to make a statement this morning. I want to proclaim something that may not sit well with a few of you in this room. I like bread. And I would like that type of response when I preach, by the way. You guys are clapping for bread. Gloria, welcome back. 
Go ahead and knee surgery. I'm glad you're back. Sorry, I just caught someone's eye right there. By the way, I like bread. I like bread and I cannot lie. All your other brothers can't deny. I like carbs. Now, granted, I try to control my carbs, but I'm telling you what, when you go to a restaurant and they, I'm not talking about like Olive Garden, God bless you, Olive Garden people, but then when they, they will warm up the bread. But I like fresh bread. How, there's Jesus in that moment with fresh bread. And when I think of fresh bread, I think of, there's a restaurant down in Springfield, Missouri. That's where I went to school. It's a place called Lambert. Oh, somebody said Lambert's. Woo! Now, Lambert's is known for a few things. Now, when you're at Lambert's, like, when you order something at Lambert's, I don't think you understand how amazing this place is. Now, it's so amazing that when you pull up, there will be tour bus, buses coming over from Branson to Lambert's. But when you're eating, no matter what you eat, it's always the most obscene portions. Like my friend Clint, I took him there. He ordered the burger. The burger was ginormous, but there's the rule. If you finish something on your plate, you get it refilled. Clint ate two and a half of those. <laughs> Whatever you eat shows up again. And not only that, like before you even order, and then while you're eating, there are people walking around with southern food that you just either on your plate or on uh, the paper towel, because a big old roll of paper towel there, you pull it out, they are putting down fried okra, black-eyed peas. Man, there is cornbread being slapped down. Man, there's my southern's got to come out here. And so they are filling you. But the best part of Lambert's, it is known for the throwed rolls. Now, if you're like, what does that mean? Because you will sit in, your, in the restaurant and you're talking with your friends, and all of a sudden the doors of the kitchen burst out, and there's this dude, walks out with a cart with rolls fresh from the oven, and he yells out, hot rolls! And then you put your hand in the air, and he will chuck them across the restaurant. No joke. Rolls are going everywhere. And once in a while, you hold up your hand and you drop it right away so it hits the people behind you in the head. It's an amazing experience. One time, I held my hand up like this for some reason. The roll came and fit right on my finger. Burned my finger. That burn was exquisite. If you walk away from Lambert's hungry, you need Jesus. Oh, I love, you walk away from Lambert's eating bran is what you need, but oh, I love Lambert's. I love their throwed rolls. They're just, they're, they're the best. And by the way, there are people walking around with molasses and jam. We're in the South. We're getting jam. They're being slapped on those biscuits. Oh, it's so, man, my mouth is watering. This passage bleeds bread. You can't read these these verses, they got what, these 21 verses, and not think about bread. Now, if you've been in church long enough, doesn't this passage sound very familiar? By the way, when I was working through my series and I gave, I gave people, other preachers, a choice of what passages they, they wanted to preach out of, I realized all of us, I think all of us, but Pastor Carissa are preaching out of Mark. This should have been questions Jesus asked in Mark. Uh, but we're all, for some reason, sticking in Mark. But Mark gives us the story of the feeding of the 4,000. But two chapters earlier, what story does he give us? The feeding of the 5,000. Now, 
when you think about, about the Gospels, and if you're new to Christianity, the Bible itself, it's split kind of in half, not really in half, but there's two main sections called the Old Testament and the New Testament. And when you get to the New Testament, the first four books are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Good job. Get a pop chart for that one. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Oh, sorry, you get a throat roll for that one. And of the four Gospels that tell the story and the life of Jesus, the Gospel of Mark is the shortest out of all of them, which means space is at a premium. But Mark decides to record in Mark chapter 6 the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And then all of a sudden, two chapters later, he records Mark chapter 8, the feeding of the 4,000. And so either you're thinking either Mark is lazy or Mark is having deja vu. But I have heard skeptics argue, it's like, they can't, the Bible and the writers can't even get their numbers straight. Is it 5,000? Is it 4,000? And people have asked me, pastors, is it 5,000 or 4,000? I'm here to say yes. It's actually two different incidents. And for which, if you look at the incidences, they are very similar. Let me show you. Now, if you look at it, Mark chapter 6, we've got the feeding of the multitude. Mark chapter 8, the feeding of the multitude. And then after that, they, Jesus gets with the disciples and they cross the Sea of Galilee. After that, they have conflict with the Pharisees. And after having conflict with the Pharisees, they began to have a conversation about bread. Jesus loves carbs. Hallelujah. So, we're looking at this and you're thinking to yourself, are you sure it's not the same? I am positive it's not the same. Well, why with such a small amount of space that, that Mark has, 16 chapters, why take up space, so much space, producing what seems like the same story twice? Let me ask you this. For every parent in the house, every aunt and uncle, every grandparent, anybody who has, has ever mentored a child, have you ever had to tell a child something more than once? Maybe you all are better parents than I am. I may have had to tell my children something more than once. And Jesus, he is repeating something on purpose. Man, why did we need all of this all over again? Why did we need, we need to read about the feeding and then read about the crossing of the sea and then reading about the Pharisees and reading about the talk about bread? Why do we have to do this? Because I believe Jesus did this for the disciples because he knew their hearts were at stake. And it's recorded for us twice. Why? Because Jesus knew our hearts are at stake. And in my brain, I'm like, Mark, John tells us at the end of his gospel that there are so many other stories, so many other miracles, so many other supernatural things that Jesus did that there's not enough books to contain it all. So Mark, you had a list of things that you could have chosen to record, but Mark chooses to record this second moment because he knew that when it comes to the heart, our hearts are at stake. I love what Proverbs 4 says. It says in the message, keep vigilant, watch over your heart, that's where life starts. Watch over what happens deep inside of you. That's where life starts. Because you can't always help what happens in your life. What happens in your life is not always up to me. But what happens within my heart is. I can't help what people do to me, what people post about me, what people say about me. I can't always help what happens around me. And I can't always help what happens to me. But I can help what happens within me. Jesus knows our hearts are at stake and he wants us to get, he wants to get a hold of our heart. He wants to shape our heart. He wants to cultivate our heart. Because he knows that when he captivates the innermost part of us, we sang that this morning. When this inside gets captivated, it orders everything else. And so there are three realities this morning about our heart that I want you to get. 
three realities. If you're a note taker, we're going to go one, two, three. Easy peasy this morning. Three realities. If you're a note taker, write this down. Number one, Jesus wants to ha- us to have our hearts know who he is. He wants us. He wants us to know a reality in our hearts, and the reality is of who he is. What I love about Mark chapter 8 is it tells us where he was going. He was going to a place, and another translation we'll call the Decapolis, and that means ten cities. Ten Gentile cities. Now, we know that Jesus was sent first to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And for every non-Jew in the house, I think we'd all say, thank you, Jesus. And so we see in even right here where Jesus is going, we see the heart of God, that the gospel is good news for both the Jews and the Gentiles, that Jesus shows up for all of us, that the Father loves us so much that he sent his son for all of us. And so he shows up and begins to teach. Now he feeds them, but he also teaches them. And for every one of you that have ever messaged me about the length of my sermons, look at what Jesus did. Jesus taught for three days. Now, when preachers ever say, here's my conclusion, you have to give it 10 minutes-ish. Because they're not really wrapping up. It's a lie from the pit of the Dallas Cowboys. It's just a lie. But Jesus, he starts talking, and he talks for three days. Why? Because people are in a moment, and they don't want to move. Have you ever seen somebody have a moment and they don't want to move from that place? Can I tell you about hundreds of thousands of people who are experiencing that right now? We call that the Taylor Swift concert tour. (laughs) Two weeks ago, her tour racked up a record-breaking $1 billion in sales to the point where city mayors are talking about the boost to the economy that Taylor Swift has given. My wife is all excited down here. (laughs) That at each venue, she is selling an average of 54,000 tickets per show. That meant by tour, I should say, concert number 22, that she had sold already 1.1 million tickets. She's doing over 50 shows. Her concert is 44 songs long, which means that the concerts are minimally three and a half hours long with 10 distinct acts. Why can people sit through three and a half hours of Taylor Swift? By the way, I will never know. But they're in a moment and they don't want to move. Why are people sitting, honestly, without food, without provision for three and a half, really three days? It's because they are having this moment and they don't want to move from the presence of Jesus because it's in this moment that Jesus is putting on display who God really is. There's so much confusion going on because some of the religious leaders were painting pictures of God that was making God so misunderstood and Jesus captivating their hearts, not for three and a half hours, but for three days, like this is who God is. Look at this, verse number one. Jesus immediately puts the heart of God on display. It says, in those days, a great crowd gathered and they had nothing to eat and he called his disciples to him. He says, I have compassion on this crowd because they have been with me now. They've heard me preaching for three days straight and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away to their homes, they will faint on the way. How hungry do you have to be knowing that if you take a walk after this that you're going to drop? Again, don't ever complain about the length of my sermons ever again. Y'all do just fine walking out of here. Three days of preaching, three days of teaching, 
And Jesus, notice it says in verse 2, he had compassion on the crowd. That's huge. Now notice, nobody was complaining from the congregation. Nobody was sending Jesus messages to his iPad during the congregation. It's time to wrap up. We've got to go to Lee's Chicken after this. Nobody was doing, nobody's tapping their watch. But what I love is this, is Jesus knew their need before they ever had to express their need. And he gives us this reality of this, compassion, uh, this compassionate God that looks in our lives and he, he, and he looks at us and God begins to move even before we ask. Does that mean we don't have to pray? No, I think we ought to pray because praying is not about getting what you want. Praying is about letting the presence of God transform your life. That's what prayer is. But I love the fact that we've got a God that when we are in need or even before we know that we are in need, he knows what we need and he's already moving on our behalf. And so we get verse 4, which in the Greek is an awkward sentence. The disciple said, how can one feed these people with bread, with the bread here at, the, this, at this desolate place? How can one feed these people? Now, this seems ridiculous because two chapters earlier, the disciples already saw the feeding of the 5,000. Does this seem like a dumb question? Have you ever had somebody ask you a dumb question? No, there's no such thing as a dumb question. Well, there's a few, by the way. Let's be real. But here... The most apt way that the commentators say that you're supposed to translate this is the disciples are not asking, how are you going to do this? They're asking about the intention of Jesus. Jesus, this is what they're saying. Jesus, what would you like to do? What do you have in mind? And then out of the minimum, what do we got? We got some loaves. We got some fish. And out of minimum, he creates more than enough. So we've got a God that knows what we want. So Jesus immediately puts God's compassion on display. And then secondly, what does he put on display? He puts on display the creative power of God. The Latin word is ex nihilio, and it means to create out of nothing. That in this moment where it seemed like there was nothing that, that God can create. This should remind us of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was void and formless. And darkness covered the face of this earth. God didn't need a few loaves and a few pieces of fish. God could have just created it out of nothing. Because he's the creative God. Which encourages me. Because when it feels like that my life has been reduced to nothing. And I've got nothing in front of me. That God can take my nothingness and create life out of that in the middle of it all. We've got a God that can take our nothing moments and our broken moments and he can take all of the brokenness and give us more than enough. It's ex nihilio. It's out of nothing. He doesn't need my help, but he still chooses to use me. He doesn't need our offerings, but he chooses to use our offerings. God is more than enough. Which leads us to number three, that he wanted to put on display the fact that Jesus always meets and exceeds the demand. He always meets and exceeds the demand. Now here's where you got to dig down a little bit deeper into the Greek language. Because in Matthew, excuse me, Mark chapter 6, it says that after he fed the 5,000, that there were 12 baskets left over. But with the 4,000, there were 7 baskets left over. Jesus always does more than enough. You're like, well, pastor, you're, 12 is more than 7. But when you look at the Greek words, in Mark chapter 6, the word there for basket actually is wicker basket. There were 12 wicker baskets left over with the 5,000. But when you get to this, the 4,000, there were seven. And the proper Greek word there is reed hampers. Left. Full. 
So picture baskets, picture, y'all know what a hamper is, right? I remember I had a good friend of mine that he, his, he has three boys, and the oldest was old enough to actually watch the younger two, and they left for a date. They're like, we can go out without the kids. And so he goes, I come home. He goes, why do kids leave evidence behind? I'm like, what are you talking about? So he sends me the picture of the two older boys. They, they had got the iPad out and didn't delete the pictures. Kids, you've got to be smarter than this. He's these pictures of the two oldest putting the youngest in a clothing hamper and sending him down the stairs, and he was in the air in the hamper with the biggest smile on his face. With 5,000, 12 wicker baskets. With 4,000, seven hampers full of food left over. What does this tell me? That even with feeding fewer people, Jesus has more left over. Some of us can be so bent on what Jesus did at the miracle that we had a few years ago, or a few seasons ago, or a few chapters ago in our life, and for some reason, we get to a moment of darkness and we wonder, does Jesus have any miracle juice left in him? But we have to remember that he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, so therefore, that when we need a miracle, we can look back and celebrate, but we don't live here. Some of y'all live in the past move of God, and no wonder why you're missing the present move of God, because you're too busy living back here. I appreciate these moments, but I believe that God has greater days in store for us, and you may need a miracle today. Just remember, he did it before, he can do it again. He's the God of more than enough. He's the God of more than enough. And as you walk with Jesus, your understanding and experience of his goodness and grace and greatness will continue to multiply. Which leads us to number four. He wanted to put the heart of God on display. He wanted to talk about God's creative power. He wanted to um, have the supply meet demand. And he also wanted to get down to the fact that he is the bread of life. He wanted them to understand that you've been, you've been eating this bread, but I am the bread of life, he says. In fact, John chapter 6, verses 48 through 51, Jesus tells them, hey, listen, you remember in the wilderness in the days of old when, when your forefathers were living in the wilderness and they had nothing to eat and God gave them manna, bread from heaven. He said that was there on a temporary basis. He says, I am the new manna and I am the bread. I'm the one that feeds your soul and that fills you to completion that you don't have to hunger for anything else that the world offers. In fact, Jesus was born in what city? Bethlehem. Do you know what the name Bethlehem means? House of bread. House of the throat rolls. He's the one that sustains us. And even his last action before he went to the cross, before he went into his trials, what did he do? He broke bread. Would you take this out with me? I thought it would be apropos for us as a community to do just that this morning is for us to break the bread together. With just the talking and the experience of bread, he put the heart of God on display. When we look at the bread this morning, and we get this spelled out by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when we look at the bread, we look that the bread is putting the heart of God on display, the compassion for all of us. The fact that he is demonstrating his creative power coming into our nothingness and creating life because of him. 
that his supply that he gives us is always more than we ever need because he is the bread of life. So this morning, Jesus, we thank you. Holy, holy are you, Lord. And we hold on to this bread and we say thank you for giving your life for us because you are the bread of life. And on the night of his, his betrayal, he took the bread and he'd do this with me and he broke it. So take this as my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you take and eat the bread this morning? Thank you, Jesus. And on that same evening, he took the cup and said, this is my blood, the New Testament in my body. This blood that we sing, sang about for two centuries, the one that has made us whole. It is the ink that signed a covenant that was forever, that for all of us who would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. Today, let's drink the cup together. Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace. Your life that touches our lives and ignites us into new life. And so today, I ask that, Lord, for anybody in the room that just have not truly understand the heart of God, that I pray that today, even in this moment, that we would understand you in such a deeper way. Give us revelation of who you are. We pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. So number one, we create, we, Jesus wanted to create the reality that he wants to have our hearts know who he is. Number two, in conclusion, Number two, we must have our hearts on guard against what Jesus hates. What does Jesus hate? He hates sin. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Some of y'all hear Jesus hates sin or God hates sin, and you translate that to God hates sinners. And I understand there's some theology, especially on this side of the state, that exists to say that God just loves some and God just hates others. You and I, we should have some conversations about uh, the theology and the hermeneutics of all of that. Because we have to recognize that God can hate sin and so love the individual. Because we think, that, we think that sin and sinner are the same. God loved the sinner so much he sent his son. And so God, so Jesus is dealing with sinners, verse 10 through 12. The Pharisees come up, the church leaders come up, and they ask Jesus for a sign. Now when we read that word sign, we immediately think of miracles. Jesus Split, split the Sea of Galilee. Jesus, do this. They're not actually asking for a sign, like a, a miracle. They're asking for a prediction that he is a prophet because they immediately, they had an answer for his power. If you go back to Mark chapter three, they'll say that his power is demonic. He's from the devil or he is the devil. So they were never denying that he could do the miraculous because they already explained it away. Well, he could do that because he's full of the devil. They were asking for a sign. They wanted a prediction because they knew if they can get him to make a prediction, they had him and they were going to benefit regardless. What does that mean? Well, if he predicts something good for Israel and anti-Rome, that may work out well for us. But if he makes a prediction and it goes wrong, then by the law he gets killed, it works out well for us. They wanted a miracle. What they didn't want to do is have faith. They wanted to remove faith out of the equation. Show me a sign, do this, and then we will follow you. And we can get mad at the Pharisees, but we, don't we all do this to God? You know, God, I, I, I would love to be a tither, but if, if you gave me more money per year, then, 
then I'll tithe. Or God, you know, I would stop hooking up with, with, with young ladies in the area. I would, man, I get myself off tender. And uh, if, if you would just give, give me a pure Christian girl, and I promise I will stop being frivolous with my body. If, well, God, if, if you just give me this, then I will do that. We're taking God out of the equation. See, Jesus is not about the litmus test that you're trying to give him. He's about radical faith and radical surrender. Not, God, if you check off all my boxes, then I'm all in. He's not about that. In the words of that great Christian show in living color, homie, don't play that. That's not Jesus. He doesn't do that like, okay, let me check your boxes. Let me make you feel a little bit better. Let me just cozy up next to you. No, no, Jesus is about radical faith and radical surrender. John chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written that you may believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. You don't get to check off the boxes and then believe. We have to start with belief, and that's where life comes. Believing is a prerequisite for having life in Jesus' names. Jesus is not going to play that game. He wants us to come to him with radical life and radical surrender and simply say, I trust you with my life. Then we get toward verse 12, which I find quite funny. And he deeply sighed. He deeply eye-rolled the Pharisees. And he's not just, some of you may read anger. I bet you Jesus is angry. But at the same time, the compassionate one, I believe, his heart was broken. He said, man, you still don't get it. And then he says this in verse 15. He says, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. He lumps these two together because these are a fascinating little dichotomy here. Because with the Pharisees, he's like, listen, you've got people that are dead on the inside, but they're covering up the outside. It's called self-righteousness, and I'm going to just fool everybody and think I'm living in the right way, but deep in the inside, I'm empty. There's one extreme. And then you got Herod, who just didn't care. He just didn't care. I'm just going to be evil and live it out and not care about what anybody says. And he said, watch out for the sin of both sides. Just living frivolously the way that you want or trying to cover it up so you look all nice for Sunday. By the way, I see a lot of people in pink today. Real men wear pink. Awesome. Dressing all up for Sunday or putting on this and making sure that we can fool everybody. Listen, we can fool people, but you're not fooling God. And God says, watch out for that type of leaven because that type of leaven is toxic to the soul. Now, if you think about leaven, leaven is slightly different from yeast. When it comes to yeast, yeast gets down within the dough and begins to eat away at the alcohol and feed on the sugars within the dough, which causes the dough to rise, which causes carbon monoxide, uh, by, uh, CO2 to be in the dough. And so what Jesus is warning, he's warning, he says, beware of sin. Because sin will get in you and begin to work. Back in these days, when they made up a new batch of dough, before they put it into the oven, they would take a pinch out of it, a good-sized pinch, put it into a jar. Some of y'all make sourdough. You know what I'm talking about. And they would cover it and care for that, and, and they would bake their bread. And so when they went to make their next loaf, they would, they would make up some new dough, take that leavened dough, put it in there, because that leaven would build up and grow and get inside that dough, take a piece, store that piece over and over, rinse and repeat, rinse, rinse and repeat. But if they didn't care for that leaven well, 
then that leaven begin to get toxic. And then you take that toxic and you put it into the new dough and begin to work its way through, eating away things under the surface. Why leaven? Leaven, why is it like sin? Because number one, it's hidden. We don't see it working, but it's working beneath the surface. And not only does it work between the surface, but secondly, it spreads relentlessly. I love what the Puritan pastor, John Owen, says. He says, sin is at its deadliest when it's at its quietest. Some of us think that we're fine because we're not loud about our sin. But you can be quiet about your sin and know this, that sin seeks to kill and to destroy your life. And it wants to spread because it will consume you. And lastly, number three, in my second conclusion, Gabe, come on up. Number three, we must have hearts sensitive to the words and work of Jesus. So the three realities Jesus wants to create here is number one, to have our hearts know who he is. Secondly, that our hearts would be on guard against what he hates, which is sin. And lastly, that we would have hearts sensitive to the words and the work of Jesus. Because when we get to the end of this passage, the disciples, it's like, it's like I don't know where their heads are at. And so Jesus begins to ask them questions. He begins to list questions off. I mean, look at verse 17. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Some translations will say, have your hearts become dull? What is he saying? He's saying, listen, have you grown calloused already to the things of God? Because these men who have traveled with them, they have seen the bread provided earlier. They saw blind eyes open. They saw the, the, the deaf speak and they, they saw the lame walk. They saw miracles after miracles. And there's sometimes that we can get so close to the proximity of the things of God, but when you don't act upon the things of God, it can create brittleness in your walk with God. I want to say that again, that there are times that we can get in so close proximity to the things of God that if we don't respond to the things of God, if we don't act upon it, if we don't ponder upon the things of God, then what happens is we just become brittle to the things of God. And it seems that's where the disciples are at, that Jesus' words and work have just kind of made them a little bit brittle. Because they knew answers in their head, but it seems like it got away from their heart. I mean, seriously, you just saw him feed 5,000 people. Oh, Jesus, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Did you run out of power? It's Sunday. We can't get Chick-fil-A. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And Jesus is like, where is your head gone? The last question, do you not understand? I think that's one of the problems in what I would call American Christianity nowadays is we can know a lot about God. You can know a lot about the scriptures, but we don't, truly don't know the one behind the scriptures. We know a lot of answers, but we're not here to show up and get answers. We're here to show up together as a community to worship Jesus and to engage with his presence. Because I don't want to be a church that knows a lot about Jesus. I want to be full of Jesus. I want to send out people brewing and spilling over with the presence of the Spirit of God in their life. And we can't, if we want to see revival happen to our city and happen to our county, it's not going to be because we know a lot about God. And do I want you to know a lot about God? Yes, I want you to know a lot about God. But I don't want you, I want to be more than just head knowledge. I want to be possessed with His presence. So that when, when I have those moments at the 5,000, I'll walk away full. But when 4,000 moments, show up that I don't doubt what God has done because I've seen him do it before and I know he will do it again 
to be back to a place where I know and I can trust in Him. And even though circumstances might not go the way that they're going in the present, I can still lean back in the faithfulness of God and say, so God, I hope that you never have to look at me and say, do you not yet understand? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's done it before, he'll do it again. And then once he does it again, I believe he'll still do it again, and he'll do it again, and he'll do it again, because that's just who he is. Jesus wants them to take stock of their heart. He wants us to know where our hearts are at. He wants us to be sensitive to what he is doing, to hear his voice, because if there's anything I pull from this passage, is that life is about the heart. Hearts that are sensitive, hearts that are on guard to sin, hearts that know who he is, because if we have the right hearts, it's out of the hearts that life starts. Bow your heads with me. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that even though we can have moments where life gets followed up, and Lord, I don't know about anybody else in this room, moments of just absolute failure. I have been there, and I swear, I keep returning. Where it seems like I can just fall short. And I'm thankful, Lord, that you don't stand over us just tapping your toe at us, but it seems like you're, that you're there to reach down and to pull us up out of the things that want to drown us and to restore our lives. And God, I ask that today that you would call all of our hearts into question. They would help us to do exactly what Psalms 139 would challenge us. They would challenge us to search our hearts, to check ourselves. Some of us are so quick to judging other people because we're so busy trying to deflect what we are dealing with that we would love to point somebody else out. And God, I ask that this morning that you would help us to search our hearts. And Lord, for some people in the room, Lord, maybe they're searching their hearts and they've never really truly understood who you were till today. And they understand today that you are full of compassion and slow to anger. And that you're ready to restore. There's some people here today, Lord, they've been playing around with sin in their life. They've been playing around with lust. They've been playing around with greed. Dabbling in gossip. God, what they've been doing with their bodies or with other people, God, they've, they've had the stance, well, it doesn't harm. There's not, no harm in my eyes, then there's no harm at all. Lord, I pray this morning for the conviction power of the Spirit of God that would just grip all of us to challenge us, Lord God, to not just to view our sin, but Lord, to lean into you in the middle of that moment, God, and ask not just for forgiveness, but Lord, for the strength to walk away from the thing that wants to bind us that we would be a people marked by life in Jesus and life in you. Amen. Everyone said.